Uh, what was your golf score the last round you played? Uh, before your shoulder was injured. Three under par. Ooh, three under par. Ooh. That's what the professionals shoot, isn't it? Well, if they're lucky. Hello and welcome to episode two of Talkin' Golf History, the show that brings the past into the present and tries to figure out what it might all mean for the future. I'm Rod Murray and can I start by saying a huge thank you to everybody who tuned into episode one of the pod. I think it's fair to say we were a little taken aback with not only the number of downloads, but the response from listeners as well. To all who reached out on Facebook and Twitter and through other means, it really is quite humbling to know that you enjoyed a whole podcast about a subject that so many people never give a chance and like golf itself self has a bit of an image problem that we hope to play a role in correcting now just before i bring in my co-host for the show and excitingly our first ever guest let me run through a little bit of homework firstly you can get in touch in a couple of ways email history at talkinggolf.com just the one g in talking golf history at talkinggolf.com it's probably the safest but i know that social media dictates much of our communication these days so you can find me at at rod underscore mori or co-host Connor Lewis at the most appropriate of his multiple identities at at S Historians. The Society of Golf Historians also has a Facebook page where Connor in particular is active and you can search for that or check the show notes where I'll also put a link. Lastly and most importantly, one of the main drivers for starting this podcast was to help everybody from expert to novice share information and learn. For that reason, questions from you, the listener, will form an integral part of this show every two weeks. We want to hear from you, and we don't care how silly or obvious your question might seem, because there's no such thing as a dumb question the first time you ask it. Questions can be about anything you've heard on the most recent episode, or from any part of golf history that might have captured your interest for whatever reason. Again, you can email them at History of Talking Golf, or, and this is the most important part, people, so take special note. I'll give you a minute to get pencil and paper. Send tweets with the hashtag TGHistory. Myself and Connor can easily track a hashtag, so if you make sure to use that hashtag, hashtag TGHistory, we'll be certain to get your queries, and that will hopefully add a special dimension to the show. Enough of the formalities. Let's get on with the fun stuff. To start proceedings, it's a big hello and welcome to the man who's by far the biggest cog in the gearbox that makes the whole Talking Golf History drivetrain move forward, the always upbeat, ever so slightly nuts, Connor Lewis. Connor, great to be back. Already we've shifted our monthly schedule to fortnightly. Already we've buggered up an episode that we're now re-recording. Who knows where we might end up from here. Great to have your company today, my friend. Thank you so much, Rod. We're really excited to have uh, ever, all the listeners here, too. I was uh, just a repeater echo Rod's comments, blown away by the number of listens. I, I think I predicted, Rod, what did I say, like 10? And five of them would be my family? Yeah, that's okay. right, somewhere around there. Yeah, Shout out to my family for listening to it thousands of times. I think we could say that safely. That's a safe play. Um, but it has been overwhelming. Uh, I, I honestly didn't think we'd get that many listeners, and it's uh, fantastic that people care enough yeah, it's actually, to uh, listen in and make co- make great comments. That's right. That's the important thing. People are actually interested. So that's nice. That doesn't happen often when I talk. Uh, you're right, Connor. It is exciting times. We've only just begun this journey, but already we're showing our hand by welcoming our first guest. And frankly, what a place to start. Billy Williams will be known to many listeners by courtesy of his very active and very interesting Twitter account. He's an avid historian of the game, and while it's impressive that he's written three books, two on Harry Varden, one on Ted Ray, perhaps the more impressive tidbit is that he shares a birthday with the great Bobby Jones. Bill, welcome. I can't imagine that that was deliberate, but what a nice thing to go through life knowing that you share a birthday with Bobby Jones. Yeah, Bobby should be so privileged. Well, Bob, as I think he preferred to be called. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, 
It's my pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. No, no, thank you for saying yes. Gents, the title of this week's show is Major Questions for the Major Championships. And I guess uh, what we're getting at here is that like, we all accept the four tournaments we call majors now, but it hasn't always been thus. So we want to explore where we are now, how we got here. I'm going to start with you, Connor, and I suppose there's no argument about the, two, the standing of the two Opens, is there? Things are a little less obvious with the PGA and the Masters. Can you give us a quick thumbnail sketch of when and how they came to be accepted as Grand Slam events? You bet. Uh, I think first we'll talk about uh, the modern standard for professional major championships. The uh, The modern standard of professional major championships, the Open Championship, the U.S. Open, the PGA Championship, and the Masters, uh, really came into shape uh, due to uh, Arnold Palmer in 1960, who really wanted to mimic Bobby Jones's uh, uh, Grand Slam achievement of 1930 by essentially inventing the modern-day professional uh, Grand Slam. So to do that, uh, in 1960, I'll let uh, Bill go into this a little bit more, uh, he devised the four major championships which would encompass the Grand Slam. After 1960, I doubt anyone has a debate over whether these four events are major championships. The real question, I suppose, is prior to... Arnold Palmer's declaration in 1960, were they? Bill, do you want to jump in on that? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, l- let me just start by saying, I think the discussion is likely to be a little bit controversial for those listening. Um, we, could end up, we could end up making a few friends, uh, but more likely losing a bunch. Excellent. Um, <laughs> my, my, uh, my feeling is we're, we're all students of golf history, and, and none of us can know everything. From my own perspective, the more I read and research, the more questioning I actually become. Some of golf history is, um, to use a quite popular phrase, fake news, in, in my opinion. And, and the question that I have is, how is a major win, a major win when the tournament wasn't a major and those playing in it didn't know it was a major. Now, just just to slightly elaborate on that, we all we all know, as Connor just said, what the four majors are. Mm-hmm. The players know it's a major championship before they even step on the first tee, and they are prepared for the biggest test in golf. The, the players know, as do the patrons, that the golf courses are set up as a tough and hopefully fair test of golf. And just to give you an idea of that. Um, just to illustrate, really, Phil Mickelson won the AT&T at Pebble Breach, you know, a week ago. And the course is going to be used for the US Open this year at Pebble. But the track that Phil won on will not resemble the course come June. Same with the Open Championship in 2021. The old course will undergo changes that will be nothing like those encountered in, say, the Alfred Dunhill Lynx tournament every year. It's also perhaps worth mentioning that, that we are talking about major championships with a, a capital M, Grand Slam events by any other name, not major tournaments with a small M. In, in other words, a noun and not an adjective. Tournaments of significance, I suppose, Bill. Would you probably put things like Arnold a- Absolutely. Jack Nicholas's tournament, the Players' Championship would be a significant event, wouldn't it? But not majors with a capital M, as you say. Absolutely. Connor, I guess that all makes sense when you think about it. And recency bias means many of us never think about this stuff, don't we? We just accept that the four majors are the Masters, the 
the US Open, the Open and the PGA. As I said, I don't think the Opens, there's no dispute about the Opens. I mean, the clue's in the title, isn't it, really? They're open. So they've, they've always been the two biggest events. What are some of the contentions? I think Bill makes a really good point about players being credited with majors when they won the tournaments at a time when they weren't acknowledged as majors. What are some of the contentions about perhaps the histories of both the Masters uh, and the PGA that you look to when you think about when they became majors and what was what was their standing prior to that? Um, so what we'll do is we're going to go in chronological order. I think that's probably makes the most sense. So we'll start off with the Open Championship. Uh, first, a major Open Championship, first major ever. Uh, started in 1860. Uh, I'm going to kick it over to Bill here, but I don't think we have any contention as to whether it was a major or not. Bill, any comment there? Uh, Okay. Well, I I think um, some people might have a contention with it being a major from day one, but I don't. Um, You know, the first Open Championship was played at Presswick in 1860. Uh, You know, although Tom Morris had a lot to do with making the tournament happen, the idea of holding a tournament to determine the best player in the world was conceived, actually, by two gentlemen, James Ogilvie Fairley, and Archibald Montgomery, who was the 13th Earl of Eglinton, both of whom were members of the Royal and Asian Club and Presswick Golf Club. The premature death of Alan Robertson in 1959 was really the driving force for the Open. The first tournament had a field of only eight golfers, but these eight were arguably the best golfers in the world. Um, And just as a point of interest, no amateur golfers were invited until the following year, 1861. The story behind why there were only eight players is an interesting one, if I can slightly diversify here. All the known golf clubs in Great Britain were sent a letter inviting clubs to send their best caddy golfers to compete in the tournament. The proviso was that the golf clubs had to guarantee the sobriety and behaviour of the caddy golfers, which is a joke, uh, which many were unwilling to do. Big surprise. That's why my ancestors were not invited. Yeah, and at that that time, um, Presswick was a 12-hole golf course, and the tournament was played over three rounds, therefore 36 holes. The the winner was Willie Park Sr., and he beat uh, old Tom Morris by two strokes. They played for the championship belt until that was retired when young Tom Morris won the Open three consecutive times, as we all know. Um, And to to my mind, because they were the best golfers in the world at that particular time, um, it's a major championship from inception, in my view. I think I'd and I concur. Yeah, I think you, I, I would concur too. Although you can see how somebody might want to nitpick and make some sort of a case about the other, but it, it, it's open. It's the best golfers of the day, which is probably the most important thing, isn't it? In that sense, Bill, is that it's the best playing against them. None of the best have been excluded, which is what we see with some of the other majors later down the track, which we're going to talk about shortly. Yeah, um, I mean, we, we'll talk about the US Open, and that had a very small field in the beginning as well. But, you know, the point is, is that they were they were the best golfers in the world at that particular time, and they were competing in a brand new tournament to establish the champion golfer of the year. You said there was eight in the field. How many golfers might there have been at that time? So what percentage of the golf population, I guess? We know there's 156 in the Open each year now in the US Open, which makes up whatever percentage it is, would eight have been a greater 
percentage of the total golf population at the time than what we see now with 156? I, I think it's the proviso about the sobriety of behaviour thing <laughs> hadn't come into uh, effect. I think you probably would have seen something like um, from this is England and Scotland. Um, you'd have probably seen something like about maybe 30 or 40 golfers. Yeah. I'll tell you another little interesting note here, Rod, on this is uh, going back to the sobriety and behavior of their uh, their uh, invites is that in the first couple of years of the Open Championship, it has actually cost the winner money to win the belt. So they actually Explain. had to put down a deposit to take home the championship belt because this this idea of the drunken uh, the drunken thieving caddies might not return the belt. So they actually had to put down a deposit to take it with them. So they actually lost money and paid more money to come in second many times for years going on than it was to take home the first home prize uh, the championship did, they, belt they, for one year. They did get the they did get the deposit back the following year, but uh, what that, that's Tom? besides the point. Now, what happened when they retired it with Young Tom? Did he get his deposit back? <laughs> yeah, yeah. By, by, then, by then they had dropped the deposit. Thank goodness. <laughs> the game is much more professional. Uh, that's I, I just I love that little tidbit about yeah. the, that to win it you actually had to put down money yeah. and you didn't get money back out of the whole endeavor. Now of course the winner in this day and age is entitled to I think they purchased do they not Connor a two thirds size replica of the Claret jug. I know Kel Nagel had one. I went to his house once and it's it was fantastic. There it was just sitting on the mantelpiece was a yeah. two-thirds replica. I've got a feeling that the player have to pay for that and there might be a similar arrangement with all the other majors. Am I right about that, Connor? Do you know to... I'll be yeah, honest with you. Bill might know this. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, there is a, a company in England that actually reproduces um, the major trophies, um, not just the Open Championship. But what happens is, is the uh, RNA give the uh, winner of the uh, of the open um, a replica jug okay which they that, that they can uh, keep for one year uh, and then obviously you've seen it on TV they have to bring the, the, the trophy back they do they can purchase I think it's up to three open championship trophies for their own use they and they're a, they're a smaller size yeah, that's a replica right. um and they can keep those in fact um, on some of the golf auctions you may have seen you know some of these trophies come up for sale from various uh, recipients of the open championship in the past for the record i have a spot on my desk for one of them i'm not really particular whose championship trophy it is but right there in the left hand side of my corner that i'm pointing to perfect spot for one yeah, I think I think John Daly has uh, sold a couple. I, I, <laughs> I think I, I he believe, did too, didn't believe, he? But, last week, yeah, last year. I, and I I believe um, Tony Jacklins has uh, sold one, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed, interesting, uh, interesting stuff. That tells you about it. Uh, it stands. And if I'm not mistaken, Bill, is there not also? Now, my understanding is when you win the Masters, you have your own green jacket made, which you pay for. And there's only two suppliers in the world. You need you either need to go to Savile Row. Or Augusta National's own tailors will make it. It's something like that. And here's a snippet. It's the the, the green jacket is made with Australian wool. So, oh, did not know that. There you go. Which is not lovely for us down here in Australia. So when Adam Scott won it in 2013, it was a lovely snippet to pull out and write a little bit of a story. About. All right. So we've established the the bona fides of the Open Championship, Connor, the U.S. Open. Have we got any debate? Yeah, we'll jump at the U.S. Open. 
I think there could be a debate. I don't think there's a debate for me. So 1895, unless you count the 1894 um, national championship, which Willie Dunn won, but that's a different story. 1895, the USGA is together, and they held uh, both the U.S. Amateur and U.S. Open. I see that as a major from the get-go. I think there's probably an argument, I'll let Bill jump into this, that the strength of the field would be one argument against it, and that the professionals and amateurs on the other side of the pond were much stronger than the field that we put together. But I'll jump into uh, Bill. Why don't you uh, kick into that? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, as, as you just said, the first Open was played in 1895 at the Newport Golf Club in Rhode Island. Um, there were actually 11 players who started the tournament, and one of them withdrew after two rounds, so left 10. Um, also due to play that week was um, C.B. McDonald, who had won the U.S. Amateur just the day before, also at Newport Golf Club. Um, and I, I have no idea why he did not play, but he, he was down to play, but he didn't. Um, the Newport Golf Club was a nine-hole golf course, which they played four times to, like the Open, to complete 36 holes for the tournament. Um, and as history tells us, Horace Rawlings won the tournament two strokes ahead of Willie Dunn. Um, Scottish immigrant golfers, um, plus Harry Varden in 1900, dominated the tournament through uh, 1910. And it wasn't until the first homegrown Johnny McDermott won in 1911 and 1912. And of course, that was followed by Francis Wimet in 1913. From my point of view, I, I think few, even though the best golfers in the world were not competing in the early U.S. Opens, both the U.S. Open and the Open Championship are both national championships. And they were competed for um, by, you know, the, the two nations which were the biggest in golf, which was obviously Great Britain and, and the USA, which was growing. So I think few would argue that both the Open Championship and the USA Open were major championships from inception. And this is also endorsed, if you like, when Bobby Jones won the impregnable quadrilateral in 1930. I mean, he won the U.S. Open, he won the Open Championship, and he won the two amateur events, which were the premier events in the amateur game. So even back in 1930, the Open and the U.S. Open were considered premier or major championships. I think, the, the, for mine, the Open kind of seals it. If it's an Open, um, was it feasible for the best British golfers to maybe go over and play in those first few US Opens? Bill, was that a feasible proposition? Uh, well, the, uh, the early winners of the US Open were obviously... Um, are you talking about the US Open? Yeah, the US Open, Open in that 1895. Yes. You know, the British yeah. Golf. Yeah, well, the competitors were basically uh, the immigrants from Scotland and, and England. Um, for the best golfers in the world, and, and you have to say J.H. Taylor, James Braid, Harry Varden, Sandy Hurd, um, and, and a number of others, right? It, it was a week. It took a week to travel across from the UK to, um, to the Americas on, on, a, on a liner, right? And then... It took a week to go back as well. Now, you have to bear in mind that at that particular time, there was no such thing as a professional golfer. 
they were all golf professionals. In other words, they were employed by various golf clubs. Harry Varden, you know, he he worked for 30-odd years at South Hearts Golf Club. That was his his employment, although he was allowed to go and play challenge matches and play in big tournaments, etc., etc., you know, they were golf professionals, not professional golfers. That slightly changed when um, uh, Walter Hagen came along. So I think we can say realistically, it probably wasn't pragmatic to expect the best golfers. So, so both the original Open and US Open fields attracted the best golfers that it was realistic to attract at that time. And I think that is kind of the key, isn't it? That, 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 that yeah, just, just a, yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just, another, just one point on that. The US Open of 1900... Right. That was the year that Harry Varden came across to the USA and he came around the February time um, of 1900 and he stayed basically to about November. But he actually there was a break in that because he went back to the UK to defend his Open Championship, um, which I believe was played at St. Andrews that year. And he came second to J.H. Taylor. Now, Varden played in the US Open that year and won it. And who was second? Another visitor to the USA, which was J.H. Taylor. So by 1900, I think we can safely say we're off and running. You, can dis- you might be able to dispute the first ones, but by then we're talking the best in the world. That's, I suppose, the boring stuff, Connor. We all agree about all that. <laughs> let's, let's talk yeah. about the pages that we don't, not that we don't agree on, but that maybe their history is a little more contentious about when they became majors and crediting players with, you know, a total number of major championships based on victories that happened before these tournaments were necessarily considered to be capital M majors. Yes, absolutely. And I think that discussion and debate probably starts with the PGA Championship in 1916. Uh, the PGA Championship, I suppose the argument for it being a major at the at its inception in 1916, it was originally designed to be the, like all capitals underline the, professional championship for the PGA Tour, PGA of America. Now, from 1916 to 1968, the two were one and the same. The PGA Tour, the players, and the PGA of America, the teaching professionals, as Bill alluded to earlier, were the same. Your uh, Walter Hagen, for instance, would be also your head pro in Detroit, or he'd be the head pro at Pasadena Yacht and Country Club. So there wasn't a distinction between PGA Tour and PGA of America. And in 1916, along with Wanamaker, uh, and the Wanamaker Company donating the Wanamaker Cup. Uh, the match play tournament known as the PGA Championship was established for those professionals. Now, I don't want to take anything away from Bill because I know he has an argument. And I think we should just jump into it right now. Bill, why don't you uh, give your <laughs> argument for the PGA? Well, yeah, I, it's, uh, I, I definitely have a contention with that. You know, the PGA Championship, as you alluded to, was first played in 1960 after the formation of the PGA of America. Uh, let's look at the first tournament in 1916. There were regional qualifying tournaments to get into the the first um, PGA Championship, right? Um, and there were probably um, medal play championships of 36 holes dotted around the USA. There were 32 people that actually played in the very first PGA Championship. Um, and that went on for um, for some time. Um, from 1935 through 1955, the field was increased to 64 players. 
Uh, and from 1956 to 1957, um, that was 128 players. Um, in 1958, they abandoned the match play format uh, and it became what we know today as a medal play championship. Now, my, my contention with the PGA of America and the PGA Championship is, you know, up until 1957, and, and this is quoted directly from the horse's mouth from the PGA of America. Up until 1957, no non-PGA of America member was permitted to play in the PGA Championship. Um, that changed uh, in 1957 when um, you may have heard that uh, Gene Littler passed away a couple of days ago. Yeah. He, beca he became the first non-PGA of America member to compete in the um, PGA Championship. Um, the rule, a rule did exist that if somebody won the US Open in that particular year, um, the articles of the PGA of America were modified to allow um, a particular player to compete if he wasn't a PGA of America member. But just to give an illustration of that, in 1952, Julius Boris won the U.S. Open, and he was not, at that particular time, uh, in that particular point in time, he was not a member of the PGA of America. He did subsequently, and it could have been that same year, he did uh, become a member, but the bylaws were modified to allow his entry. Now, Boris played one practice round and then withdrew Stay in the depth of ill feeling towards his entry was the cause. And in, in my opinion, that's a clear case of protectionism by the PGA of America members. Uh, the golfers didn't want him there because he wasn't a member of the PGA of America. Do we know, Bill, why he wouldn't have been a member of the PGA of America? I mean, we've all heard the name Julius Boris. I would, most, like me, would assume that he was a, 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 as a, a, a tour player, as we would call it now. As you know, there was no tour at the time. Right. Why, why would he have not been a PGA member? That's a good question. I don't know the, the exact answer to that, but you could ask the same question as to why Gene Littler wasn't a member of the PGA of America in 1957. That's interesting. And this, do we know any more about this, this ill feeling that drove him out of the time? That's quite an extraordinary set of circumstances, isn't it? And for him to say so publicly. Well, I, you know, this was a direct quote from the PGA of America that I've just given you. And, um, uh, uh, obviously, it was, you know, if you if you think of what the PGA of America was, a um, bit like the PGA of Great Britain in, in uh, 1901, it, it was a bit like a trade union. Mm, you know, true. it was a it was a closed shop. It was it, it was created to improve the lot of the golf professional, which had been Connor. I mean, you agree with that? Yeah. I agree 100%. Yeah, there was no, again, there wasn't a distinction between PGA professional and tour player at the time. So it was a dual purpose of uh, supporting, essentially teaching professionals that were also touring pros. Just, I'm going to come to you in a minute. It might be interesting to note if, it might be interesting to note, and I don't know this speculation, if Julios uh, Boros might been, have been between uh, club jobs at the time. And that might have been the reason not for being a PGA member. But uh, again, yeah, maybe uh, give up your membership because you pay, I assume. So if you're not, if you're between jobs, why would you pay? Maybe. Well, actually, yeah. that's 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 a very interesting point because this applies also to Walter Hagen. 
because Walter Hagen was um, associated with Detroit, uh, one or two other country yeah. clubs. But there was a period of time where he was not um, associated with a particular club. And in fact, at one point, he wasn't even a member of the PGA of America. In fact, when they uh, were talking about the um, the pre the pre runner for the Ryder Cup in 1921 at, at uh, Glen Eagle, as uh, yeah, Glen Eagles, um, there was some argument as to whether uh, Walter Hagen should have captained the team uh, in that forerunner because he wasn't a member of the PGA of America. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right? You can't imagine, can you? You think about that now. That would have just, that's an unthink. But at the time, I guess it, it probably made sense for all sorts of various reasons of the politics of the time. Bill, when would you contend that the PGA as we know it today becomes a major? Can you pinpoint a year, do you think, when you can Yeah, yeah, I, I would say, I would say without a doubt, as Connor alluded to earlier on, that things changed in 1960, right? Um, it's an interesting thing about um, Arnold Palmer. He had a um, Associated Press interview about a week before the US Open of um, 1960, which he went on to win. And in that, that interview with the Associated Press, and I have a transcript of that somewhere, um, he talks about the, the concept of a Grand Slam. You know, he 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 grew up reading about Walter Hagen and Bobby Jones, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there were no, in quotes, majors, right, besides the U.S. Open and the Open Championship. So he, he discussed with the Associated Press in that interview about the concept of a, a Grand Slam. Um, and then... He won the U.S. Open, so therefore that article was actually published and sent around the whole of the USA. Um, and he was then on a flight with um, Sam Snead to uh, Port Marnock, where he um, was competing in the Canada Cup, um, which is now called the World Cup of Golf. Um, and on that flight, he was accompanied by a very dear and close friend of his, which was uh, Bob Drum. He's a correspondent, sports correspondent. And they were having cocktails on the flight across to Ireland. And uh, Arnold turned around and said to uh, Bob, it's a well-documented story, um, that um, he fancied the idea of a Grand Slam. What did he think? And immediately Bob Drum turned around and said, the Open, the US Open, the PGA Championship, and the Masters, right? So, and they both agreed that that was what it should be. Now, where it went from there was that Bob Drum was over in, in Ireland and he went across to, to the UK for, um, to, to Britain rather, to, because uh, uh, Arnold was competing in the Open Championship in 1960. And he had a lot of buddies in the press, uh, British buddies in the press, and he, he, put that idea around and it was very, very well received. Um, and then he came back to the U S and he 
push that around, that idea around with the American magazines, uh, golf magazines and correspondence, and it was well received over here. And by 1963, 1964, if you look at some of the Golf Digest magazines and stuff, it was really accepted around that early part of the 1960s that those four major championships made up the Grand Slam. That's quite interesting, isn't it, Connor, that essentially, I mean, Palmer being such an enormous personality has kind of just driven that. He's just kind of foisted that upon Between him and Bob Drum, they've cooked it up on a plane over cocktails, which is, on a side note, a wonderfully dignified notion, having cocktails on the plane. Absolutely. To to Ireland, and they've just cooked it up between them. It would be a bit like Tiger Woods and Tim Rosefort deciding that the players was a major. And yes, I Yeah, can you imagine? On purpose, yeah, but that's essentially Uh, what's isn't it? I, yeah, I we'll, think it's we'll, fair to call him the king, right? Big time, big time. I, I, I have got no, I've got, I've, I'm no doubt that um, Arnold Palmer um, was the conceived the modern Grand Slam. Yeah, just put it on the list of these extraordinary achievements. What an, what an amazing sort of human being. I guess, Connor, just to go back, so Bill's kind of pointed there towards exclusion, sort of being the problem with the early runnings of the picture. What do you sure. think about that? What do you say about that? Because I think you still think... Yeah, those, those I, 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 yeah. And Bill and I just, yeah, we uh, politely disagree with each other on this one. I think, obviously, there was a barrier to entry, which was becoming a PGA uh, member. Um, I don't think it was a high bar to set to become a PGRA member, uh, but there certainly is a barrier to enter, just like uh, there is a barrier to entry for the U.S. Open or the Open Championship via uh, qualifying, mind you, but definitely a barrier to entry. I think we could make an argument, a similar argument, if you will, by uh, the exclusion of other races for the U.S. Open and Open Championship, uh, you, other than John Shippen in uh, 1896 at Shinnecock. Uh, there are all types of exclusionary you know, pieces to major championships. I think this one, again, in my mind, is a major in 1916, but I absolutely understand where Bill's coming from. And don't disagree with it, just other than... Well, well let me just... Yeah, uh, fire just, away. Just, just interject one more time. Up until about the mid-1920s, the best golfers in the world were from Great Britain. Okay? If you look at the PGA Championship, you couldn't play in that championship unless you were a member of the PGA of America. So therefore, by definition, you are excluding the best players in the world. And to me, it's just, a, it's just a golf tournament. And if you look at the number of people that actually played in that tournament, and I gave you the, the numbers before, um, you know, uh, through 1934, it, there was 32 players that competed in the PGA Championship. Yeah, after regional qualifying, um, which I assume was a 36-old, um, you know, middle play thing. Um, and, and then it increased from 1935 to 1955 to 64 players and so forth. But the, the mere fact that it was exclusionary as far as anybody outside of the PGA of America excludes it in my mind as being in quotes a major championship I think you can so where I would flip that argument would be to say if you were to include the the best of uh, Europe which as you said you know has a specific date into the 1920s so if we excluded uh, January 16 right that's Jim Barnes 
we have 1917, 1918, no tournament was held. 1919 was won by Jim Barnes. 20, Jock Hutchinson. Right. 21, I think 21 through 22, 23, I think you could definitely say that the table had turned and that the best in the world were American golfers. You Then you start with Hagen, Sarazen. Sarazen wins the Open Championship. Uh, I believe what? No, Hagen wins it in 22. And then it was a kind of an onslaught of American wins until Americans stopped going for a while at the Open. And I, I guess if I were to backpedal a little bit, I'd say Bill might have a point until maybe 1920, 1921, when the tables had turned from at least having the best players in the championship. Uh, but again, I, I look at it again, barrier of entry. Absolutely. I, I don't disagree at all, but it was set up as the championship of the PGA tour or the PGA of America, which at the time was the exact same. So just to which clarify, we just disagree. Yeah. yeah no, which, good. which didn't apply, which didn't apply to Great Britain. Correct. Absolutely. Bill, so so what year are we putting you down for? The PGA became a major in, and Bill's answer is? 1960. 1960. Who are we excluding? Who are we taking majors off, Connor, between 1960, oh, 1916 yes. and 1960 under Bill's uh, new regime? Who loses Wal- a major? Yeah, Walter Hagen loses five. Uh, uh, Gene Sarazen loses three, I believe. Hogan we loses have, one. Hogan loses, uh, Hogan loses more than one. Hogan loses two. Uh, Sam Sneed loses three. You might have to move and, back to the UK, Bill. <laughs> yeah, I, B- Bill, you're not safe here. <laughs> yeah. I, you need to run. Jackie Burke loses a major. I mean, Jackie Burke's still alive and, and still playing good golf. He could come get you right now. <laughs> you could. Well, I told you this was. I told you this was going to be contentious, didn't I? And controversial. Yeah, but I think. Look, I think you make a reasonable point, Bill. And I reckon you'll have probably fifty percent of people will say Bill's right, and fifty percent of people will say no. I think Connor is. More importantly, a hundred percent of people hopefully think about it. Because this is important well, stuff, I, isn't it, in the game's history? It's important to, yeah. to look at and study it and understand it before you decide which side you're on. And that's, that's the well, real thing. Perhaps you, perhaps you want to move on to the Masters, Connor, and, and <laughs> oh, dear. explain that one. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Well, jump in. How, do you want to jump in? Let's do it. Uh, what Masters. do you think? Come on, Connor. All right. Um, I'm going to hold my breath for a second. Um, we're going to start with the uh, the Augusta National Invitational, uh, which is the precursor to the Masters. Bill will give you a little bit more feedback on that. Started in 1934. Um, from 1934 to 1960, I think, is where we're going to look at, put the microscope on. Um, I'm going to let Bill talk a little bit more, but I, I'll give you a little bit of my feedback here, too, is um, just to, to break um, – Break, break the glass here a little bit. I'm going to agree with Bill on uh, what he's about to throw out there, unless everybody hates the idea, and then we'll just edit this piece out. And then you'll be... Go ahead, sorry, Bill. Why don't you be, jump in? Come on, Bill. Tell us what you think. Tell well, uh, okay. You know, as, as Connor just said, the first Masters was played in 1934. Um, and in those days, until 1938, it was just simply known as the Augusta National Invitational. Um, and it then became, the, you know, the Masters from 1939. Um, in 19, just to give you some numbers here, in, in 1934, there were actually 73 competitors, which included um, Bob Jones, who had um, retired from competition golf in 1930, uh, a whole bunch of his friends, probably the members of Augusta National, um, and a number of uh, the best golfers around in the USA at that particular time. Um, Halton Smith won the tournament, so we all know that. 
Um, but two absentees from the first tournament was uh, Australian golfer Joe Kirkwood uh, and Gene Saracen. They didn't play because they were off to Argentina playing exhibition matches, which they'd already committed to. Um, but um, Saracen did play in 1935, uh, and that was the year when he had an albatross on the par five, otherwise known as the shot heard around the world. Um, the field in 1935 was 65 players. So it's gone from 73 competitors to 65 players. In 1936, the field was 54 players. It's getting smaller. So you might, note, you might notice a, tr- a trend a here trend. is going down. In 1937, 46 players. In 1938, 44 players. In 1939, wow, it went up, 47 players. Uh, And in 1940, it rose to 59. In 41, it went back down to 50. Um, And in 1942, which was the last time it was played before, um, you know, war had been declared with... um, after the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of uh, 1941. 1942 was the last time the Masters was played before the cessation of uh, World War II. There were actually 42 players signed up for that tournament. Um, Two of them withdrew, so there were only actually 40 players who played in there. Um, And again, um, there's a story about that because Bob Jones didn't want to play in it. Um, I mean, don't forget, we're now talking 12 years after his retirement from competitive golf. Um, But um, Roberts persuaded him to to play because there were so small numbers that were available to play because most people were off going serving their country. Um, So here you have a tournament with 40 players in 1942, not the best in the world, although to underline that slightly, um, Hogan, Nelson, and Sneed did play in that in that tournament, and uh, Nelson won it in the playoff. Um, but outside of those three, the the field was really um, just a bunch of um, oldies. Um, so how you can label that as a major championship? And the ones before it, to be perfectly honest with you, um, is is beyond my comprehension as a as a student of golf history. So, what year, Bill? Same question about the PGA. The Masters became a major in, according to Bill Williams. What's the year? I, I would say it grew in popularity from the mid fifties. The, the Masters tournament most certainly grew to to almost what we know it today. Um, and I would say that the same the same answer to the PGA. PGA Championship in 1960, it became a Grand Slam major championship. And major Connor, who have we just taken yeah. majors off under Bill's, oh. <laughs> under Bill's Masters? Yeah, I'll go through them here. So, so I'll go through them here in a second. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're going to have a long list of angry people. Um, I, I think just to add, I think Bill mentioned some of these, but the 34, I think he mentioned Gene Sarazen. Uh, Tommy Armour and Olin Dutra also did not play in the opening uh, uh, Augusta National Invitational, which, again, I think is fascinating. If we were going to consider it a major, um, would you skip a major to do to go to Argentina? I think Bill was mentioning that's where uh, Sarazen went. Um, So here's here's what you have. And I, I hate to put it this way, but there's a little bit of revisionist history here, I think. I hear a lot of people say, you know, the, the Masters is a major since 1934. Absolutely disagree. I hear other people have said in the past that the Masters became 
a major with uh, Jean Sarah's and shot her around the world in 1935. Again, I think that's a little bit of a ridiculous statement that one shot makes a major. Um, but to give you a list of champions here, that would be uh, – we'll get the hate mail for. Uh, we would uh, – Arnold Palmer would lose uh, one of his majors, one of his uh, Masters championships when he won in 1958. Right. Sam Snead would lose all three. Uh, ben Hogan would lose all of his as well. We'd have uh, Jimmy Demerit would lose three, all of his, of course. Uh, Byron Nelson loses two. And uh, Gene Sarazen no longer is a career Grand Slam. Oh, ouch. Um, and then no, you have Horton Smith, who loses two. So it's, it's a big it's – it, it's definitely a, a big line of contention. I'll give you a little evidence. Um, whether you want to draw the line at 1960 or I think in the 1950s, it is definitely – a major tournament and uh, possibly borderline major championship. I think prior to the war, I agree with Bill 100%. I, I think I'm sticking with Bill on 1960, but just to give you an idea of some of the things that we uh, hold dear to the Masters. So it wasn't until 1949 that the green jacket was given out. It was given out to Sam right. Snead in 1949. So from the beginning to 1949, no green jacket. Imagine that as as the symbol we use to start off our golf year with the majors is the green jacket. The Australian wool um, industry would be devastated. Right. That's right. Right. But I, I, <laughs> I think the most telling one uh, to support Bill's comment here of 1960, and, and it, you know this happened during 1960, so wow. you could actually argument argue that the first major would have been maybe even 1961. Uh, if you you know because you, you started halfway through the year with Arnold Palmer making the statement after the Masters, right. so in 1961, the uh, the Masters Trophy was introduced, which is the miniature of the clubhouse in solid silver. So prior to 1961, and I, again, you know I'm sure Augusta National will disagree with this, and I completely understand that. But in 1961, an actual major championship trophy, which is the clubhouse in silver, was handed out for the first time. And I, I think that backs the story. You have a major championship trophy in 1961. Can I, can I just add a couple sure. of bits there? You know, we, we have a, a logical cutoff um, when the four Grand Slams are, and I think that 1960 is the, the logical date. So even though... Um, it wasn't adopted as being a Grand Slam. You know, the, Palmer won the U.S. Open and the Masters in 1960. You know, I, I think 1960 is a logical cutoff date. That's just my personal opinion. But the implication of this is that, and you just mentioned it, Connor, Gene Sarazen doesn't have a career Grand Slam. Yeah. And the other one is Ben Hogan. Are you comfortable yeah. with that? Oh, good point. Bill? I didn't even think of that. That's confronting, isn't it? Are you comfortable with that, Bill? Because this is what I'm it comes down to. I'm, I'm, I'm changing my mind right now. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I, 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 am, I am personally, um, because I look for the truth. I mean, I'm not driven by you know, an agenda or, or some bias towards, you know, and I'm not trying to take anything away from these players because they actually won those tournaments. There's no, there's no doubt that Long Jim Barnes won the PGA Championship in 1916 and 1990. There's no doubt in that Horton Smith won the, um, what is now the Masters in 1934 and Sarazen won it in 1935. What I'm just saying is that they were not major championships as we know them. Um, 
or even as Bobby Jones knew them in 1930. Wonder how he and I think to Bill's point, to Bill's point, I I don't think if if you honestly asked if Gene Sarazen was still alive and you asked him in 1935, was this a career changing victory for Eugene? He'd probably say this is Bobby's tournament or Bob's tournament. Correct. I mean, I honestly, I think that's where. Don't you think, Bill? Well, it's the point that we started with when we when we sort of laid the groundwork out for this discussion. The golfers today know when the majors are. Yeah. They prepare for those major championships. The golf courses are set up differently than they are for regular tournaments, and that goes for Augusta National as well. Yeah, um, that. It, 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 there's a big expectation that there is a major championship coming up. And then when you're playing in that major championship, there is the pressure of, from the player's perspective of knowing that they are competing in a major championship. Yeah. Now, when you retrospectively credit a whole bunch of golfers, right, and I don't care what their names are, um, with a major championship win – when it wasn't a major, when they didn't even know it was a major, when there was no pressure, when the golf course probably wasn't set up as being a major test of golf, it's, it's beyond my comprehension personally. Is this, is this a career-defining moment? I think that's, that might really be you know, the, the line in the sand. Is this a career-defining moment? Like, are you on the ver- verge of tears upon victory? So I think you used the example last time, Connor, and it's, a, it's one that makes sense, I think, probably if we move it to the modern times. <clears throat> the Players' Championship and Ricky Fowler. If, yeah. the play, if the PGA Tour and the Golf Channel get what seems to be their way of making the Players' Championship being considered a major at some point soon, Ricky will get credited in 2016 with having won a major. Adam Scott will get credited with having won one in 2004. He's four, I think it was, that he won it, um, whichever year it was. And when you think about it like that, those tournaments is what Bill was saying, were not won under major championship pressure, were they? And that that's kind of the key. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, or course setup, perhaps, or, or conditions, it, correct? Or conditions. Yeah. Or conditions. I, I think you could look at it. I think that's extremely fair uh, comment. I mean, did, has Ricky Fowler won a major? I think Ricky Fowler would say he has not won a major. So the fifth major, pardon my French, nonsense doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You would give. Matt Kuchar, which, by the way, thank goodness he paid his caddy or I'd get in hate mail from even mentioning him. Uh, but Matt Kuchar, uh, Stephen Ames, Jody Mudd, Ricky Fowler, just to name four that I have just written down in front of me, would all be major Perks, winners. Man. You've missed Craig, Craig Perks, Perks. New Zealand's second male major winner. Third, sorry, major that's male. That's right. Bob Charles, right. Michael Campbell. And, and I, I think we'll... See, when we Kim. first talked about this, if it was still a major, yeah, yeah if, if it was still a major... Uh, would Sergio have named his kid Sawgrass instead of Azalea? I mean, it's, again, it's a defining moment. You named a child after a major championship victory, or at least you know a, a, a memory from a major championship victory. Is is it that? Let, let me, right? I think for I, the players, I, not. sorry, sorry, Connor, to interrupt. Oh, go ahead, please. Can, can I kick in here and just give you um, some examples? Uh, and it's to do with this retroactively, retrospectively credit in these majors where, where it hasn't happened in, in other tournaments. Can I say that? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, let's have a look at this. I mean, we, we know that um, 
I mean, we come to the question as to who actually did all this. But, I mean, that's, that's something that we should debate as well. But if you look at the Evian Championship, for example, which is on the, the, you know, the LPGA, that was designated a major, the fifth major championship in 2013. Yet no prior winner of that tournament were credited with major wins. So that's, that's number one. In 2001, the Women's British Open became a major on the women's tours. Yet no prior winners were credited with major wins prior to, to that. And that tournament actually goes back to 1976, by the way. Now, the next one, which was also an endorsement to my argument, is the Senior Open Championship, which uh, began in 1987. In late uh, 2002, it was designated as the fifth major championship on the Champions Tour schedule. Winners, and this was from, uh, uh, this is common knowledge as well, winners before 2003 were not retroactively designated as Champions Tour major winners until December or November of 2018. And let, let me just elaborate on that. In, in uh, 2018 last year, Bernard Langer you know, dominates the senior tour. He won his ninth senior major championship. Not to be outdone by, uh, by that, Gary Player, who had uh, six senior major championships, lobbied um, that he won the senior British Open in 1988, 1990, and 1997. Therefore, elevating his senior major wins to nine also equaling Bernard Langer's. Okay, what happened was a decision to retrospectively credit these wins was actually made by the PGA Tour Advisory Council in conjunction with the PGA Champions Tour, right, that those prior um, tournament wins would retrospectively be credited as major wins, even though, again, you know, that championship probably wasn't set up as a major championship, la, la, right. la, 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 la. Now, the interesting thing about this was uh, within a, a day of um, that decision being taken at the end of 2018, the World Golf Hall of Fame immediately adjusted Gary's career bio, and you can go check this out on the World Golf Hall of Fame website, to reflect these past three wins. However... If you look at um, a fellow Hall of Famer, Bob Childs, who won the Senior British Open in 1989, so that was a year after Gary won his first one, uh, does not reflect his senior major successes. Is that an oversight, do you think? Bill? Well, um, I think, you know, no disrespect to Gary. I think he lobbied for, for himself um, and possibly because the World Golf Hall of Fame no longer has a golf historian there, which, which is a which, disgrace. Um, which, exactly. exactly. Um, it could well be an administrative thing that's not happened, but certainly um, those player profiles on the bios of the World Golf Hall of Fame, um, one has been amended, i.e. Gary Players, Bob Charles has not been amended. Amazing. Bob probably didn't tweet about it, I suppose. Kudos to Gary Player. Uh, Connor, for his extraordinary competitiveness. 
<laughs> even into his eighties to turn. Yeah, to no doubt. Right? Uh, doing whatever, yeah. whatever it takes to sort of get there. He, but I he think, called. He called before uh, his push up and sit up sets. I'm yeah, sure. that's right. Phone in one hand, doing push ups on the other. Uh, no doubt. Bill makes a really interesting point there, though, doesn't he? That that speaks directly to this issue of. And I suppose the other thing is there is no criteria for majors. There have been other contenders in the past, haven't there, Connor? Other events which have oh, absolutely. had a chance yeah. to become majors perhaps had they been viewed because there's no checklist that you tick it off. I mean, Arnold Palmer decreed the most recent two as far as we can make out in 1960. Tell us about some of the others that might have been contenders over the years and why they may be failed. Yeah. Yeah, let's say I think an interesting question might be um, if it weren't Palmer, let's say it was uh, Walter Hagen decided to set up a professional major championship Grand Slam. What would he have chosen? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I think one of the best examples or contenders, I think there are three or so contenders. uh, If you look at uh, over in the British Isles versus the United States, I'd say the strongest contender, though, again, I'm going to preface this by saying that I do not include it as a major championship. But one of the strongest contenders is the Western Open, which was established in 1899. Uh, Some historians claim that it should count as a major from 1899 to 1933, which is when, of course, the start of the Masters in 18, or I'm sorry, 1934. I don't agree with that uh, standard of of looking at it as a major. I think it's convenient to give players an opportunity to have four majors a year versus three. Uh, The case for it, however, uh, the strongest case for it, in my opinion, is that from 1899 to 1919, uh, the Western Golf Association was a ruling body for the game of golf for the West and Western uh, part of the United States. So that would be the Midwest and the Western states of the United States. And the Western Open was, in fact, their championship, and the Western Amateur was their amateur championship. Now, going a little bit further into that, into those uh, first 19 years of the WGA, a really st- uh, stunning example happens in uh, when Francis Wiemet was stripped of his amateur status for owning a sporting goods store, therefore, quote-unquote, uh, profiting from the game of golf. The USGA banned him or stripped him from his amateur status. I find it very interesting that in that very, I'd say, I think in the next two months, the Western Golf Association wrote about and contacted Wiemet to let him know that he could still consider himself an amateur for the Western Open and the Western Amateur. So they were very much at juggernauts uh, against each other for the first 19 years until that settlement was made. So I'm not saying it is, but if you were to say a strong argument for a ruling body, I I think that would be a strong argument for a championship, though I'd still call it a a major tournament, not a major championship. Uh, I think it would have a case for the first 19 years. It was a, a competitive national championship body. Uh, that being said, I do consider it a major tournament and not a major championship. I think it's actually Bill? it's a BMW Open now, isn't it? I it I, is. I, I I couldn't agree I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's the the difference between the noun and the adjective. Um, as I said, in in the USA, there were small M major tournaments. I mean, the North and South, uh, the Metropolitan, um, the Western Open. Before that, the Shawnee Invitational. Those were major small M tournaments, um, but they weren't majors. They weren't Grand Slam events. They were just important events in the USA. I mean, there are a number of tournaments that were going on in Great Britain um, during that time. The, you know, the News of the World Match Play Championship right. was an enormous tournament in the UK. 
Again, it had regional, um, a bit like the PGA Championship, it had regional um, tournaments that you qualified to, to get into the match play. Um, and that was the, one of the biggest tournaments outside of the Open um, that there was for all of the likes of Harry Varden, James Bray, Ted Ray, etc., etc., wanted to play in. That was an important yeah. tournament. But it was not a major Grand Slam tournament. And I make the same case for the Western Open, the North and South, etc. Big tournaments in the US, great. Grand Slam tournaments, no. And, and again, don't remember that none of the Brits, which were the best up until the early 1920s, um, competed in the Western Open. Unless you count the ones that were here as professionals. Well, there are McDonald Smith, Willie Anderson. Yeah, sorry, just adopted. Yeah, sure. They were immigrants that came over from the UK. I mean, if it wasn't for the immigrants coming over from uh, from England and Scotland, you know, golf might be considered today in the USA like cricket or rugby. You know, who knows? Absolutely. Who knows? Yeah, I, I was just putting that out there, Bill, just so, you know, somebody goes to <laughs> just, Wikipedia and looks at it, and it says, you know, the first, whatever, 20 were won by uh, people of Scottish descent. I'm just making that that note that these were uh, folks who had moved to the United States to be taking uh, professional jobs at uh, country clubs across the country competing in the Western Open. Just yeah, putting but, that out there for the, for the audience. So they well, you know, at, you're, you're just, you're just uh, being contentious, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to my nature. It does seem well, to me... Sorry. Sorry, so, sorry Rod. The, 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 the bigger question is, who actually did this retrospectively crediting of all, all these major championships? And I, I have no doubt it, it's, it's from the USA. Oh, um, sure. but, but where did it come from? What was it? Was it the media who decided to take it upon themselves to um, to backdate all of these tournaments that were legitimately won by all these players, by the way? Um, or was it the PGA of America themselves who did this? Yeah, I would I would argue it was the media, Bill, because uh, the PGA of America has really no pull into the Masters, and that's one of the one of the the big two of what would be considered a non-major or a major in that argument prior to 1960. So my guess is, I'm just guessing, that the media, uh, once the, the, um, the standard was set, basically retroactively awarded majors, specifically the masters in my argument, the PGA and the masters in yours, uh, mm-hmm. as winners of that major championship. So you're saying it's a media-driven thing? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I, I don't know that for a fact. I have not dug in that deep, but my guess is uh, if well, I were to put a percentage, I'd say 90%, but go I, ahead. I, ha- I have a slightly – I don't disagree with what you're saying, by the way, but I have a slight um, thing to add to that. Um, the PGA of America kept its own um, record of um, tournament wins by players, except their own statistics – uh, and in 1974, the World Golf Hall of Fame was first um, conceived. Um, and that was run by a corporation called the Diamond Corporation. And it was run out of um, South Carolina. Um, what's the Donald Ross course there? Oh, my God. 
my brain's gone. Well, anyway, so the first you world. Golf, about, you're not talking about North Carolina Pinehurst. You're not talking about that. Pinehurst. Sorry, Pinehurst. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I knew I knew you would help me with that one. Um, so Pinehurst in 1974 was where the first World Golf Hall of Fame started, um, and although it was run by the Diamond Corporation, um, it was actually uh, they actually had a lot of help from the PGA of America in setting that up. Um, and then later the Diamond Corporation fell out of that and the PGA of America took it over completely. And then when it came to the split between the PGA Tour and the PGA of America, um, Dean Beeman created um, the World Golf Hall of Fame up in uh, St. Augustine um, and effectively took that away from the PGA of America, which I'm sure they're not that happy about, but there you go. Um, so it makes me wonder whether the agenda was to create this record of, of golfing records to effectively promote the game to, 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 the, to the wider audience. I, I mean, I'm, I just offer that as a, a possible reason, um, as well as the media one. Yeah, and Bill, actually, to add to your argument, I'm going to have you tell this story, but uh, why don't you talk about the World Golf Hall of Fame and how it uh, looks at the Players' Championship to that very point? Well, when the PGA Tour split away... Um, you know, Dean Beeman was a driving force and Dean Beeman was a, a visionary, in my opinion. And, and, and what the PGA Tour looks like today is a direct result of what that man did for, for, for the PGA Tour. Absolutely. Um, I, and I don't give I, I don't give a lot of credit to Tim Fincham um, afterwards, but he worked with Dean Beeman and he adopted a lot of what Dean Beeman was the visionary for. So when the PGA Tour split away, what it did is it conceived the Players' Championship as a direct competitor to the PGA Championship. Because you have to remember that the um, the split wasn't exactly amicable. Oh, it was acrimonious. Lot, it was acrimonious could be, uh, wasn't it? it was exactly. So they created that. Now, when they split... The PGA of America retained all rights in the USA to the Ryder Cup. So what did Dean Beeman do? He came up with the concept of the President's Cup, which I think Timmy Finchon took it on and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But but basically, um, so what they've got, we've now got. So it was a them and us situation. And I still think that there is a certain amount of competition to this day. Right. And uh, again, go into uh, just a little bit more from you, Bill. Um, How does the World Golf Hall of Fame look at the Players' Championship as compared to the other four events, four majors? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another silly idea. Um, the, the, The You know, the criteria and the process for induction into the World Golf Hall of Fame um, not only includes the four majors, but it includes the the Players' Championship as well. In other words, it considers the Players' Championship in exactly the same way as the four major championships. You can can see this campaign building, can't you? It really has seemed to have picked up pace this year. I think Fincham planted the seed of this notion of a fifth major. Fifth major, yeah. The fifth most important tournament to the players, I suspect, and part of that would be indoctrination is a strong word, constant 
mentioning by the tour that this is their tournament, their championship. It should be one of the most important tournaments in the world. If you're a PGA Tour member, you, you're very special and, and your tournament should be viewed that way. There's no question the campaign's underway, though, is there, Connor? And this year especially. Oh, it's, the, yeah, the it's a 20-year. have been yeah. really strong it, in suggesting a, how important the Players' Championship is. So. It's a, a two-decade campaign and, and I'm kind of looking at, I mean, maybe there's some mastery in it. That if you, it, maybe there's a, a marketing team that says, if you just say the fifth major for three decades in a row, the older guys like Connor are going to die off and the next generation are going to grow up only hearing that it's the fifth major and it will become so. I, I don't know that. Masters, However, I will, uh, let me make this one argument though. I'll make this argument is that if you were to ask the player, would they rather win the players or the FedEx Cup championship? I think they're going to say the FedEx Cup Championship because of the payday at the end. So it may actually be their undoing of having the FedEx Championship in there competing with what's the next after the top four. Just something well, to think about. I think if I think if they're ever going to add another Premier Tournament to uh, to the list for um, you know a, a player's career record, it's going to have to be you know winning a gold medal at the Olympics, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's but that's another story. Um, I, I just think um, I, I don't think the players' championship should become the fifth major. Personally, um, I think it's a very strong field. Um, and we've just discussed how it came about, um, but I personally don't believe it's uh, it should be a fifth major. I think I, I think I tend to agree. Just on that marketing thing, Connor, I think you're absolutely right, and this has been the genius of Augusta National in the last 10 to 15 years. They've started both the Latin American Amateur Championship and the Asia Pacific Amateur Championship, which has made a bit of waves. Augusta National's doing it, so people report on it. I went to the one down at Royal Melbourne in 2014. It was a fantastic yeah. event. Augusta National did an amazing job of putting it on and looking after the press and the players, and, that, and that's fantastic. The real benefit of that of, of what those tournaments have done, and this is the genius of Augusta National, is every kid in Australia 30 years ago thought the most important tournament in the world was the Open. Every kid in right. Australia now that's any good at golf thinks the most important tournament in the world is the Masters, and the reason they think that is because there's a chance they'll get to play it. So we've had yeah. two Australians in the Asia-Pacific, and then we've had a full three months or four months of you're going to the Masters, you're going to the Masters, diary from the Masters, isn't this amazing, access to the Masters via this tournament. And it has switched the order of preference of Australian golfers virtually in less than a decade from thinking the Open's the most important to the Masters is the most important, simply by saying you can win this as an amateur and you will get there. And that's genius. And that's kind of the similar program of what, not the access part of it, but just that no big, no huge fanfare about it, but it's just planted the seed yeah. in the minds of, of players that this is the most important tournament, um, and that's how Augusta's done it. And so it's uh, it's interesting. And, of course, I'm fairly certain, I mean, more than one person has re referred to the Masters as one of the world's greatest marketing exercises, haven't they, Bill? And you could make some case for that, couldn't you? As you pointed out, those first, certainly up till the second world war, it was a garden party, wasn't it? It wasn't really a serious golf tournament, the Augusta National Invitation. That's the truth. Uh, that's, a, that, that's a good way of uh, describing it, yeah. I th and I wouldn't disagree. <laughs> I think um, that's true. But there's no, there's no doubt that from the mid-1950s um, onwards, I mean, the tournament has grown. It's a magnificent... I mean, I've had the pleasure of going a couple of times, and it's... Uh, in, in, as far as the USA is concerned, it's the best patron experience anywhere. Um, I, I love it. And um, 
yeah, I mean, it's a brilliant golf tournament. It's still a small field. I mean, you get something like 90 people in the field and a bunch of them are still past winners that like Sandy Lyle, for example, or whatever. Um, It's a bit of a shame that it doesn't, you know, become more of a a, a full field event, Um, you know, because if you take those other people out of it, you're probably looking at about, 75 players, maybe. 60 to 70. But isn't that part I, of the I should make a little note here. Sorry. That, that's part of the charm of it, though, isn't it, Bill? And that's the key to the genius of a guy. They've seen that that little thing that makes it different to the others is part of what attracts people to it, I think. Uh, that's true. That's true. <coughs> yeah. I was just going to say, I think it's important for those people who are uh, yelling at our podcast right now that we can't hear you. That's right. Okay. So all comments really should go to. Uh, at Bill the Brit on Twitter. Uh, my account will be inactive for any complaints, but I should say this. These are Bill and I's, these are our opinions sure. based on what we've read, what we've looked into, the research we've done. This is by no way uh, fact or in stone. Everyone's allowed to have their own opinion. These are ours. Uh, with uh, a lot of digging involved in it, but there is uh, a lot of opinion as well, as you can see. We're, we're golf historians. We're golf historians, and therefore, what we do is we raise questions. We Absolutely. don't necessarily we don't necessarily give the answers. We give maybe an opinion, which I think well, certainly I've done that. Um, but we are raising the questions, and if you don't raise the questions, you're not alive. It's an educated opinion, though, Bill, which is important. And here's the other thing. Anybody who wants to dispute anything that's been said is welcome to. And if they want to have the knockout blow, present the document that says, on this date, this tournament became a major for any of the four. And I think we'd all agree that if you can produce that, (laughs) um, you win. But there isn't such a thing, (laughs) which is why this will always be contentious. Well, I think what you'll find... Well, anything kind of can, and anything can have it taken away. I mean, that's the the reality of it, isn't it? There's no actual criteria. I think what you'll find, I I think we brought it up in our last recording, um, that the first uh, ever major that I could find, at least in the American press, for um, the words major championship and golf being used in the same sentence together, major championship, was uh, 1916. It was actually quoting an article by Golf Illustrated. Uh, referring to Chick Evans winning the U.S. Amateur and U.S. Open in the same year. What you can find, however, um, just to correct you, Rod, is you can find plenty of people calling tournaments, maybe major championships, definitely major tournaments. And there's a whole slew of them that, I mean, Bill, you know this as well as I do. We've seen it. We've seen it as we've done our research. Uh, You know, there are articles way back when calling the North-South, the Western Open, um, the Hill America, um, the Canadian Open, the French Open, um, you know, possibly the Australian Open as well. And it's, it's you know, I, I, without the nomenclature of the Grand Slam around it, the professional Grand Slam, there were a lot of t- tournaments, again, goes back to, is it a major tournament or a major championship? There really wasn't a solid rule for what a major championship was other than national opens. Well, uh, can I, and, can I, let, I would argue can, the PGA. Yeah, go I, ahead. Let me, ju- let me just jump in. Please. As, as we stated from the very beginning of this uh, discussion, um, some of what we're talking about has been underlined by what Bobby Jones did in 1930. He, he won the impregnable quadrilateral. And to my mind, he actually won two Grand Slams. 
He won the professional Grand Slam, which was the US Open and the Open Championship. Mm. And he won the Amateur Grand Slam, which was the US Amateur and the British Amateur titles. The Amateur so Slam. That, nice. that's, that, that's, that's, the, that's the way I Amp look slam. at it. I like that. Yeah, he won. He won the Grand Slam, the Amateur Grand Slam, and he won the Professional Grand Slam. So, just to clarify, Bill, today you've credited Bob Jones with a second Grand Slam, and you've mm -hmm. taken away from the likes of Sarah and Hagen, <laughs> Nelson and Hogan, Ben Hogan, major right? championships. You've had quite the day, Bill. I make no, I make no distinction. <laughs> well, if we're give, if we're going to say that it was the Am Slam, then we all should recognize the achievements of Lawson Little, who in nineteen thirty four and nineteen thirty five accomplished the double Am Slam. Then he won the nineteen thirty four British Amateur, the nineteen thirty four U.S. Amateur, then repeated the feat nineteen thirty five with the nineteen thirty five British Amateur and the nineteen thirty five U.S. Amateur. So he would have been the only individual ever in history to have. Back-to-back -back Am Slams. So that's a, if we're recreating that, history, there you go. That would be a Quinella's. That would be a Quam Slam. That's right. <laughs> Perhaps. Or if it's the double, maybe the Dam Slam. This is getting silly now. Um, we've upset enough people. Perhaps we should take our leave. We've been at this for longer than we probably should have been. Uh, it has been fascinating to, uh, to talk to and think about. And I think, interestingly, Bill, I'm going to go away with more to think about and more to question than I think answers. And that's probably the goal of what we should be doing here. So you've, you, you've helped us achieve that, and we thank you for it. It's been fantastic to have you along and hear your voice. I can hear your writing in your voice now and your voice in your writing from now on. It's been, it's been lovely to meet digitally. Thank you for taking some time. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Uh, where can people find you quickly on Twitter? It's at Bill underscore... Brit. Oh, I, I don't know. Under, oh, it oh, is oh, at Bill oh, the Brett. Bill the Brett. Bill the Brett. Bill the Brett. Put that. Uh, yep. I'll, I'll put that in the uh, in the show notes. But thank you, Bill, for coming on. And Connor, always thank you to you for uh, for organising to bring Bill onto the show and for being here to facilitate discussion. As I said, I'm going away with more questions than answers, and I think that's the entire goal. Yeah. So and before we before we before we turn the tide here, I'm just going to leave the viewers with one more thing to consider when we talk about the Masters pre 1960, or even if in, if you agree with Bill, the uh, PGA pre 1960. And this is just using terms that we have now. If tomorrow we made the Players' Championship a major tournament, would it be fair to call Ricky Fowler a major championship winner? Matt Kuchar, all those other names. Uh, if the answer, wait, wait, wait. If the answer is no, then I think we all have to ask ourselves, is it fair to award majors to the Masters winners prior to 1960? Connor, it is my answer to this. They can create whatever majors they want to in the future as long as they don't retrospectively credit them to the past winners of that tournament. Right. And, and that was my point here is effectively that has been done. So I want them to think about prior to 1960, if you, if you agree that we shouldn't give Ricky Fowler a major championship. Sorry to point him out. Sorry, Ricky. Uh, but if we weren't to retrospectively award him, is it fair to then – Award one to Gene Sarazen. Ben Hogan, as you said. Food for thought. Absolutely food for thought, and that's what it's all about. Uh, gentlemen, that's enough. We will get emails, hopefully. Don't forget, hashtag TG History with any questions or brickbats or bouquets. Brickbats to Connor, bouquets to me. That's how this relationship works. Episode two of the Talking Golf History Podcast in the books. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking. We'll be back to do it all again in two weeks' time here on the Talking Golf History Podcast.